All right, everyone, strap in. This is episode 15, and we are going down a rabbit hole of one of the most absurd movies ever made. 1997's Face Off is honestly hard to pin down. Its general premise makes you think that it has to be some kind of joke, but it takes itself incredibly seriously and somehow pulls off being, in my opinion, a pretty damn good movie. But before we get into it, let's crack a beer. Spoilers ahead, this is the Movie Brewer Podcast. So, our movie this week is back in the 90s, so of course I had to go back to my beer classic, a double IPA. This specific one is The Perfect Disguise by Dogfish Head Brewing. Now, Dogfish Head is probably one of the most well-known craft breweries in the world. Founded in 1995, Dogfish Head is the brainchild of Sam Caglione and has always been defined by its unique attempts at brewing beer. It does things like the Midas Touch, which is brewed with ingredients found in ancient Egyptian tombs, or Super 8, which has a pH balance low enough to actually develop film. And The Perfect Disguise is no exception here. It's so named because at first glance it would appear to be a Kolsch, But through its brewing and the unique flavors of German chit malt and a whole lot of hops, it actually tastes more like an IPA. Or so I'm told. I haven't actually tasted this yet, but let's take care of that right now. All right, so this is a fairly hazy beer. Not a lot of carbonation, a very very small head. Um, I'd say, I'd say it's golden. It's like but like a lighter golden, kind of yellowish. The aroma is not overly potent, but when you give it a smell, it does. I'm honestly, it does smell like you would expect a, a Kolsch to smell. Um, so let's go ahead and take a sip here and see how we see how we feel. That's very interesting. That's very interesting. There's a bitterness to it. For all the hops that it claims to have, it's not overpowering. It does have a a unique malty taste to it. Not something I've really not something I've really tasted a lot of before. It's it's very interesting. Interesting, but pretty good. I'm on board. I think it's pretty obvious the perfect disguise would of course always be wearing the face of your enemy. Um, God, uh, see, I always say I'm not going to comment on these transitions and then they come out of my mouth and I'm like, that's the most absurd thing I've ever said. So I, uh, yeah, I'm just going to go into the synopsis here of face off. So obsessed with bring terrorist caster, Troy played by Nicholas cage to justice. FBI agent Sean Archer, played by John Travolta, tracks down Troy, who has boarded a plane in Los Angeles. After that plane crashes and Troy is severely injured, possibly dead, Archer undergoes a unique surgery to remove his face and replace it with Troy's. As Archer tries to use his disguise to elicit information about a bomb from Troy's brother Pollux, 
Troy awakens from his coma and forces the doctors who performed the surgery to give him Archer's face, leading to a final face-off in every sense of the word. Okay, so this movie is 90s to the core. The original idea for this script started in 1990. Studios were looking for the next Die Hard, as is the case with so many action films from the 90s. Screenwriters Michael Clary and Mike Werb, who we'll refer to as the Mikes from here on out, uh, started with that basic prompt of how do we find and how do we make the next Die Hard movie. Uh, the original script that they wrote was very different from what would become the final film. It was set 100 years in the future with the idea that that was the only way that a face-swapping technology would exist. And it included all of the crazy ideas one would imagine from a futuristic premise. Flying cars, uh, I, I believe chimpanzees did manual labor, all that kind of stuff. But the key point that came about from that original idea was that Troy and Archer would end up enjoying their swapped lives. And that key point would anchor the script through pretty much all of its iterations. In 1991, the film was optioned for 18 months by Warner Brothers, where it never really found its footing. Now, optioning doesn't necessarily mean that they've bought the script. It's just, a, it's just rights to produce it. If the studio doesn't do anything with it for the length of the option, it goes back into what is the equivalence of free agency. And that's exactly what happened. Warner Brothers couldn't really find a way to make it work, and after that option expired, the script was picked up by Paramount. And that's when our first director came into play, and his name was Rob Cohen. Now, at the time, Rob was an up-and-coming director who had done mostly TV, uh, and had some questionable ideas about how the script should end. Something about the bomb being sentient and Troy and Archer having to disarm it together, I details are sketchy. Uh, but it didn't last long. Cohen left the film, and from that we got Marco Brembilia, who was best known at the time for Demolition Man, starring Sylvester Stallone. And after a brief flirtation with the idea of Stallone and Arnold Schwarzenegger in the leads, he decided he wanted to aim for a much younger cast. Uh, and at the time, Paramount was eager to push a young up-and-comer by the name of Johnny Depp. This was also the first time that Nicolas Cage sort of started circling the project. He had read the script, had some interest in it, but when Depp turned down the role, Brimbilia left the project, and as much as he was involved, Cage also left. It's an interesting side note that Johnny Depp had thought, based on the title, that the film was about hockey. Face-offs in a hockey... Yeah, I know. Um... And then comes our third director, a man by the name of John Woo. It is hard to overestimate the influence that John Woo has had on action cinema in the past 30 years. Originally from Hong Kong, his early films like A Better Tomorrow, uh, The Killer, and especially 1992's Hard Boiled completely redefine the genre. If you haven't seen any of John Woo's original Hong Kong films, please seek them out. They are absolutely amazing. You can see the beginnings of so many common action movie tropes just laid out right in front of you there. All of the major directors of today cite John Woo as a 
a huge influence on them. And I'm talking big name directors. I'm talking Robert Rodriguez. I'm talking Michael Bay and Quentin Tarantino. All of these guys draw from the works of John Woo. Okay, so at this time, John Woo was working on his first film in America, and that was 1996's Broken Arrow, also starring John Travolta. Now, the attraction between John Woo and this project was mutual. The Mikes were a huge fan of John Woo, as so many people are, and John Woo had read and was a big fan of the script. And when John Woo signed on, he brought John Travolta with him. So let's run through some casting here real quick. So as I said, John Travolta. Now, John Travolta was just sort of returning as a major player in Hollywood. He had been a star in the late 70s, rocketed up the charts by the likes of Grease and Saturday Night Fever. But throughout the 80s, he had done a bunch of films that you probably wouldn't recognize if I listed them out. But he had had a resurgence in the mid-90s, thanks mostly to his role as Vincent Vega in Pulp Fiction. That followed shortly by Get Shorty and then, of course, Broken Arrow. And after working with Wu on Broken Arrow, John Travolta was eager to work with him again on any project he might undertake. Okay, second to that, we have Nick Cage. Now, I'm sure if you've ever seen any kind of Nick Cage movie, you have a good idea of how... No, I'm going to say of how freaking crazy Nicolas Cage is. Nick Cage was on the top of his game when he signed on for Face Off at his most Nick Cage-iness. He had just won an Oscar for his performance in Leaving Las Vegas, and he had just proven his action chops with Michael Bay's The Rock. When the original production starring him and Johnny Depp fell through, he moved on to film Con Air with John Cusack and John Malkovich and swung back to Face Off only after Con Air had wrapped. There are some people out there who refer to those three movies, The Rock, Con Air, and Face Off, as a, I don't know if it would have an actual name, but as a mid-90s Nicolas Cage action trilogy. And then from there, there's a bunch of other players that you would probably recognize from other parts of pop culture. Gina Gershon is in there, probably most famous for... Uh, showgirls or bound um, but going through her imdb she is one of those people who's been in everything for years matt ross is in there silicon valley's very own gavin belson silicon valley the the hbo show of course uh john carroll lynch is in there uh he's famous for a lot of his character roles i know him best as arthur lay allen in zodiac but you might remember him from Fargo or Founder or Shutter Island, Crazy Stupid Love. The list goes on and on and on. And then you have Nick Cassavetes. He plays Dietrich Hassler, Caster Troy's friend and confidant. He's the bald one in the gang. Nick Cassavetes is the son of famous film director John Cassavetes, who was a huge director in the late 60s, 70s. Uh, and Nick has had a lot of roles as an actor, but you'd most likely know him for his directing. As odd as this sounds, Nick Cassavetes directed The Notebook, starring Rachel McAdams and Ryan Gosling. Yeah. And also, um, just for fun, Margaret Cho is in this film from 
early, early in her career, there are rumors that Chow Young-Fat was originally supposed to play the role that Margaret Cho plays. Chow Young-Fat is one of the stars of a lot of John Woo's earlier films, but there was a, uh, there was a scheduling conflict as there so often is. And we got Margaret Cho, um, which is kind of hilarious to see her popping up. When I rewatched this, it took me about three scenes before I was like, is that Margaret Cho? Have I said Margaret Cho enough times in the past few minutes? Okay. So let's go into the production. Well, before the production could begin, John Woo had to make some changes to the script. There were a lot of different things. Things were dropped, things were added, but most importantly, he brought it back from the 100 years in the future and set it in 2002. Now, this is 1996-7, so 2002, far enough into the future that face-swapping technology could be a credible idea, but not so far that you lose all sense of the world and your own ability to understand these characters. And let it be known that from the very beginning, people were nervous about this film. It is absurd. There are so many parts of this film that are easily pulled apart. I think my favorite might be that the film specifically calls out that Troy and Archer have different blood types, which makes the entire concept that they could do any kind of transplant absurd because like, you have to have the same blood type for that stuff to work. It's like a huge part of medical science. Yeah, so there are, there are so many little pieces to this film that if you dig in, make absolutely no sense. And there was a lot of worry from a lot of smart people that it was going to flop because it was too absurd. But the mics were very confident in their script and John Woo was very confident in the script so much so that he made sure that the mics were hired to be on set during the filming and they kind of became the ipso facto keepers of the script making sure that everything still worked together and still made sense and the producers were sort of happy to let them take on that role uh, lest the film failing fall on their shoulders so they shot for about six months uh, in 1996. They shot through Christmas. Some members of the production team called it the most exhausting film on earth, just from the sheer scope of it all. There are endless gunfights. There are huge set pieces. They actually crashed that plane in the beginning of the film. The final boat chase sequence took about four weeks to film. It was a lot. It was a large production. But... And I think this is kind of a testament to John Woo. They didn't really run into any huge complications as far as I could tell. So, yeah, the post-production also went smoothly. Uh, one of the big issues that came up had to do with music licensing, namely the Somewhere Over the Rainbow song that plays over one of the major gunfights. Paramount was reluctant to shell out money for that kind of thing. They thought other songs would could work just as well but John Woo was quite insistent and actually ended up paying for that song out of his own pocket the film came out on June 27th 1997 and 1997 was a crazy year for movies we're talking Titanic we're talking Jurassic Park Men in Black Austin Powers Goodwill Hunting the late 90s were a wild time in the film industry and 
Faceoff took its fair share. Uh, it opened to rave reviews for a long time. It was the only action film on Rotten Tomatoes with a hundred percent critic score, and it opened at number one. It did twenty three point three million dollars on its opening weekend, unseating Batman and Robin for the number one spot. And yeah, that's a Batman movie. I don't know. I'm not going to get into the politics of Batman movies. Um, that opening as I said, is well-deserved. While you can take this movie apart as you dig into it, you don't when you're watching it. There's something about this film that you buy into the absurdity from the very beginning. It's given to you from the moment that Caster Troy shoots a little kid on a carousel. You're like, all right, this is going to be an insane movie, and I'm not going to pay too much attention to the details, and I'm just going to go along for the ride. And that ride is fantastic. It has everything you need. It's got, it's got Nicolas Cage going full Nicolas Cage. It's got gunfights. It's got plane crashes. It's got prison fights. All kinds of crazy stuff. And yes, I realize I sound like a dude right now. Um, dude, bro, Face Off is such a dope movie. Um, but I really do love this movie. It's absurdist and fun and... I don't know. I, I'll stop gushing about how much I love it. Yeah. It ran for a total of eight weeks for a domestic total of $112.2 million. Internationally, it did 133.4 for a total global box office of $245.6 million. Now, considering that this is 1997 and it only had a budget of about $80 million, that's pretty damn good. That puts it solidly in the win column. I think this is a very successful movie on so many levels, and I'm going to stop gushing about it. God, I don't usually gush this much about these movies. I must really like this one. Um, so that's where we're at. I'm going to bring us back here to the quick facts, starting with this one. Director John Woo insisted that the slash stay in the name of the movie. It is face slash off, no space. And he insisted on that so that the film was not mistaken as a hockey movie, as it happened to Johnny Depp. Interestingly, and this plays a lot into the symbolism that drips from pretty much every John Woo movie, the names of the Troy brothers are Castor and Pollux. Those names are from Greek mythology. They are the names of the twins transformed by Zeus into the constellation Gemini. That myth ends with the death of Castor when he is impaled by a spear, by his cousin Itis, impaled by a spear, much in the way at the end of this film, Nicolas Cage's character, Castor, is killed with a spear gun. You can't make this stuff up. <laughs> Continuing on, Nicolas Cage and John Travolta spent two weeks together before filming, learning each other's mannerisms to raise the quality of what I guess you'd call their impersonations of each other. The film was nominated for an Oscar, believe it or not, for Best Sound Effects Editing for Mark Stokinger and Per Halberg. It was the eighth highest grossing film of 1997 with 112.2 million. Like I said, the highest grossing film of that year was Men in Black with 250.7 million. Men in Black, obviously an unstoppable powerhouse, at least for the first two. <clears throat> uh, and interestingly, 
and we haven't gotten here yet, but in 2019, it was announced that Paramount would be creating a reboot of this film. So I am looking forward to that. And that's what I got. I'm going to bring it back to my beer here. Um, it's aging pretty well. It's very hard to pin down. I feel like, and I have no doubt that this was probably the intention, but I feel like this is two separate beers, depending on, you know, what kind of sip I take. It's interesting to know, and I learned this when I was researching this beer and was kind of embarrassed that I didn't know this, but in 2019, Dogfish Head merged with Sam Adams Brewery here in Boston to become one of the largest craft beer companies in the world. I, they didn't, they weren't bought out. They've literally merged their, uh, their two companies. Dogfish Head is now, I guess you would call a subsidiary of uh, Boston Beer still maintaining their own brand identity and all that kind of stuff, but they're sort of joining forces to protect craft beer from the ambevs of the world, um, which I give them mad props to. And what a powerhouse these two, these two breweries have become. Um, so yeah, that'll bring us home for episode 15. This is kind of a short one. Uh, as always, I hope you'll hit the like or subscribe button. Be sure to check me out on social media. I am on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at The Movie Brewer. Uh, you can check out my movie reviews on Letterboxd and my beer reviews on Beer Advocate. And I hope you'll tune in next time. Thanks for listening. I'm Andrew Scott Willis, and this has been The Movie Brewer Podcast.